Welcome to the Safety Culture Excellence Podcast, brought to you by Proact Safety, the experts in achieving excellence in safety leadership, performance, and culture. And now your host, John M. Galloway. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Safety Culture Excellence. This is a special podcast for us today, and it will be produced in early January 2023. I'm happy to be joined today by someone special that helped us begin this podcast back in January 2008, the founder of ProAx Safety, Terry Mathis. Terry, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Sean. Good to get a chance to chat with you again. Yes, indeed. So you've had about a year and a half now to try to finally enjoy the fruits of your labor. You retired from the CEO of Proact Safety in July of 2021, and it's been difficult trying to take the reins from these impressive boots that you've left me to try to fill. So what have you been up to all this time since you've retired? Well, I, I thought I was a quick study, but I, learning how to do nothing was really a challenge for me. Uh, I'm, I still can't drive my car without feeling pressured that I need to be somewhere in a hurry, you know, or, or get somewhere so I can do something else. I'm, I'm still working on that part of it, but uh, it's coming along. I, uh, I, I never had a chance to do nothing. I found out I'm really pretty good at it uh, when, when I let myself uh, really concentrate on it. But uh, nothing's never been my style, so I'm, I'm doing quite a few things right now. I've started a whole career of playing pickleball. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of my record so far. I think I only have one recordable and two first aids uh, <laughs> in, the two, in the year and a half that I've been playing out there. So uh, I'm, uh, and I think, I think my win to loss record is somewhere close to even or a little bit in the positive too. So that's, that's something. Something else that I did when I was young and uh, always wanted to get back to was to write poetry, if you can believe that. Uh, I actually published uh, a number of things in college uh, college uh, poetry magazines and things like that when I was a little bit younger. I always wanted to get published in Poetry Magazine, the Poetry Magazine. So when I retired, I started subscribing to it again, and it was a huge disappointment. Uh, almost everything in there is whiny, poor me, uh, political or, uh, you know, taking stances uh, one way or the other. Not that, not that rich um rich poetry that I, I read as a kid, not the classic poetry and everything. So maybe I can put something in there and get them back in that direction. But that, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm re reading prodigiously. I'm writing uh, not business things anymore, but uh, more personal things. And uh, it's keeping me busy. Yeah, I wonder if that's a reflection of the society because it, se it seems even within the safety industry, which I, I hope we can talk about today, there's still maybe increasing bit of polarization over this is one, the only way to do it. This is the most important way to do it uh, versus other perspectives on this. And it seems like people are becoming so polarized. And I guess I didn't know that about poetry and kind of where it's at, but knowing where I see society is today, at least in the Western part of the world, I guess it doesn't surprise me. It's kind of sad to hear. No, I think you're right. And I, I think on top of that, one of the things I see is a more acceptance of failure, that failure is OK, that it's OK not to, to make it. That as long as you can make an, you know, making an excuse is is a substitute for making results. And uh, I, I just see a lot more resignation right now 
in uh, in society. And it's not everybody. Obviously, it's not every company, not every person, not every safety professional, but it's more than I've ever seen before. And it is a little bit disturbing. You know, uh, if you if you start accepting failure, uh, it's awfully hard to achieve success. That's true. Yet the other side to if you look at like human performance principles that, you know, failure is common. So if we can embrace the failure and learn from it. But what I hear you pointing out is that failure is acceptable. And why try any harder to achieve success? Yeah, that's uh, uh, you can't quit trying. You know, when you quit trying, you're you're defeated. It's not when you fail. It's when you fail to keep trying. And I I, I just see a little bit more of that. That's a little bit disconcerting to me right now. But without uh, criticizing uh, everybody else out there, uh, we did. I think we did a marvelous thing back then, and this was your idea, as I recall. But it was a, to address a specific problem when we started this podcast clear back in two thousand and eight. We had a very specific thing in mind, and we didn't realize, I don't think, how generic this was going to become, or, or ubiquitous. Podcasts are <laughs> everywhere, and they've they've <laughs> expanded beyond. What you and I started this with was just a simple recording between you and me about what we what we thought was in, important for a client to know. We had a global organization, several hundred locations at the time, and we were helping them deploy a particular process. And avoiding failure was the goal of this. We wanted them to be all to to for all of them to be successful. And you and I had discovered a podcast that that we were listening to, and as we would have conversations with this client. We were teaching them to be essentially us internal consultants to take the things that we know and make them fit, make the principles fit the operational realities, the business and cultural realities of their sites. So even though we tried to impart upon them as much wisdom as we could and as much example, as many examples as what would work and what would avoid failure, they would still have some common questions. So as people would contact us from the Netherlands or France or, or Germany, wherever they were, I remember saying to you, it'd be great if we could record this conversation and call it number seven. And when somebody calls in with that particular question, we could just say, ooh, that's number seven and put the microphone, put the phone receiver <laughs> up to the recording there and just push play. And that's when we discovered podcast. And I remember we were putting a tremendous amount of what, what now we would consider to be intellectual property in the public domain unknowingly as we were creating and using this platform to help this particular client be successful. And then you came to me one day and you said, is there any way that we could determine where people are listening to this at, what countries or what areas we could give our primary clients, the hiring authority, if you will, some feedback on who's listening to this. And I said, I don't know. I went and checked and the tool that we were using unbeknownst to me, did have that capability. And I remember coming to you and showing you places of the world where people were listening to this and we knew the client did not have any operations there. <laughs> I remember the Cheshire grin uh, you had when you came back in the room to tell me uh, what I had asked. And, it, you know, it was amazing, the, the spread. But what was even more amazing to me was the number. Because as I recall, we had only trained like 115 or 120 internal consultants in this company and I'm expecting you to give me some percentage of 115 that were there. And it seems to me it was well over a thousand or several thousand people that were listening to this. And uh, 
you know, I, I think it took us both by surprise. We thought we were doing a little project for a client and found out we were doing something for the world. Yeah. And then the question became, do we want all this information out there? Cause yeah. <laughs> this is a lot of how to, it's not just theoretical and, you and I decided, you know, this is this is safety after all, and we shouldn't jealously guard all this information if it can make an, a you know small amount of difference to one individual or one site. Then why not put it out there? And it kind of took off from there. And then you and I started developing the podcast where we talk about specific topics, or we would do exactly what we're doing here today: is banter back and forth on things that annoyed us or things that we thought others could benefit from our experiences. And I remember back, back then I would start the podcast as good morning from Cleveland, Ohio, or from Hunterville, France, or wherever it was. And I used to carry this microphone with me and record it in the many hotel rooms as you and I were traveling the world. And that just got to be too much of a pain. So it's gotten a point over the years where I'll set aside some days and I'll record some of this content and have it set to produce over a period of time. But it's, it, it is amazing how we started this, like you said, just to be something as a new value add to our clients to help them out with something. And next thing we know, we're being invited by what was American Society of Safety Professionals or Safety Engineers. Now it's American Society of Safety Professionals to come talk at their annual conference about podcasting for safety. As far as I can tell, we were the first safety podcast. And if there were any others that dabbled at this before us, we are certainly the longest running, if not also the first safety podcast with now, and this will get produced. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we're around 750 episodes or so now. So just about weekly, sometimes more often than that, since early January, 2008. Here we are, and a little less hair and a lot more gray hair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my hair, uh, gravity is working on it more hard than it used to. Uh, it, it doesn't want to grow up out of the top of my head. It wants, wants to grow down out of my ears, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we were first. I never could find anybody that predated us. But, you know, what I'm really proudest of is that we weren't the last. Once, once this started working, I, I remember you and I did a presentation on how to do a safety podcast at ASSE one year. And uh, after we did that, safety podcast started springing up everywhere. You know, ASSE started their own, NSC started their own, a lot of our companies started their own uh, podcasts and everything. But it, it really was a reaction to uh, a frustration, a problem that I had, because when I asked you if there was something we could do that very first time, I had just cop copied and pasted a message into 45 emails answering one particular question and 60 something answering another one. Uh, sending them back to these people we had trained as internal consultants. And I said, there's got to be a better way. You know, we, we've spread ourselves pretty thin when two of us are supporting 120 something people out there in the field. But you're right. You know, and we one of the reasons our, our internal consultant model was so successful was we didn't train internal consultants any differently than we did our internal consultants in our own company. We gave these guys exactly the same training 
that we would give somebody that we hired to be a consultant for Proact Safety. And then we realized also, we wouldn't just turn our consultant out to do his first project. We'd make them come with us and watch us do a project. Then we'd watch them do a project and, and see how they were doing. So we, we wound up, uh, and because of the technology, we were able to not have to get all these people back together to see one of these things. They could actually join us on the web uh, shortly after that, and we could do one uh, implementation that they could watch us do remotely. And uh, that, that really helped a lot too. So I, I think the technology, uh, you know, just, I mean, podcast didn't exist much before 2008, if, if at all. And uh, the, the ability for you to take something with you and record it in a decent quality. We, we had a little studio in our office when we first did this. You remember that? And I you and I used to, used to have to go into another room and sit down across the table with microphones in front of us to record the podcast. And, uh, you know, once you had better remote equipment and once people could join us on the, on the web and watch an implementation actually happen that we were leading, it really expanded our capabilities to, to share this information. And as you pointed out, I, I think we probably trained a lot of our competitors but again, this is safety. You know, if, if we taught other people how to make safety better out there in the world, uh, I can't see that it necessarily cost us anything. We still, we still did good business and, and still were able to find people that needed our help. Uh, and if we saved other lives out there in, indirectly through these other people, fantastic. Yeah, to me, my personal mission that I landed on was to continuously challenge the thinking around what is and what isn't excellence and safety. And I haven't had the opportunity to, to share this with you, uh, but when I was in Australia in October of this year, uh, working with some organizations, I discovered that in 2019, Australia has, um, has now has a requirement that was issued in 2019 around psychological safety. And it's interesting, and I'm glad they're taking steps in this. And from what I can tell, Australia is the first country, at least of substance, if not the first country, to put requirements around systems around psychological safety. And they're looking at it similar to known hazards and risks in an operational or an industrial setting. If you know that it's there, you have to have a process to identify it, to put in controls, to check the efficacy of those controls. And that's what here in America, we have general duty clause around with OSHA, but Australia started putting some requirements in place that are saying that if you have these known hazards and risks, where and there are things that can cause stress like high job demands or low job demands even, or if there are poor workplace relationships or even interestingly low role, low role clarity or perceived poor organizational justice, you know, procedures being administered inconsistently, uh, or even, even interesting, isolated work or remote work that Australia is now saying as of 2019, that you have to have systems in place to identify, put in those controls, and then check the effectiveness of those controls. And working with some of our clients, Canada has introduced a, a new standard around this, not a, you, sh you must, like Australia writes it in, in their in their documents, they have a list of musts and a list of shoulds. Well, Canada, it's primarily shoulds. And in England has developed a standard as well. And then also in, I believe it's June of 2021, 
there's now an ISO 45003 standard. So now there's an ISO standard around psychological safety. And just sharing that I find that it's interesting that how we've defined excellence and safety, you and I've defined it as the ability to get and repeat great results, knowing precisely how we've arrived at those results, and then adding in, make sure that we have the system capacity to prevent uh, human error, but also recover from when human error does take place. And then a mindset that regardless of how, how we're performing, we can always be better. Well, now we're adding that element of psychological safety, which addresses a lot of the issues you and I often see when dealing with change, understanding the why for the change, seeing how it benefits people and all of that. E even how change is administered is a part of what needs to be considered with the new thinking around what is excellent safety and that's paying attention to psychological safety. So I find that, you know, we're still advancing as a society and anything that we can learn, you know, let's put that in the public domain. But also, as we're continuously challenging these thinking, we have to figure out new ways to communicate how this thinking is different or what we need to do that's now responsibility of a supervisor or an operational leader or plant manager and how we communicate to the workforce, how we communicate to senior or lower level management is, is changing and how people are listening is changing. What content that they view, whether it's TikTok or still Twitter or whatever, that's changing. And being still on the front lines, working with organizations throughout COVID, a lot of them, their communication channels regressed back to just blasts of email communication, which as we all know, was a very poor way of getting important information out to the masses, but it's the easiest way. And a lot of organizations fell into that trap. So from your vantage point, what do you see as far as how things are changing, what we're defining as success and how we need to communicate to people? Well, as you described, uh, uh, this uh, focus on psychological safety and everything, and the bigger picture to me was what I tried to do when we first started Proact Safety. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, people had applied behavioral si behavioral science to safety. They had applied sociology to safety and, and everything. What we were doing really is applying performance management to safety, which is an integrated uh, field. I mean, it takes in psychology, sociology, and all pure sciences, but it applies them. It's much more practical and applied approach like that. And in fact, when, when we first started the company, I called it integrated performance technologies. And we, we got into the demand for safety was just tremendous. It was all, all we could handle. And we realized we didn't have safety in our name, but what, what could we do to, to differentiate us? And that's where the word PROACT came in. And I think a lot of what you're talking about Safety, when we first started this company and when you first came into the company, safety was reactive, almost totally reactive. Accident data was the only data that drove change. And when people didn't have accident data, they felt like they were successful. And they'd sit there in the dark and waiting for the next accident to ambush them rather than taking that kind of proactive approach that you're describing that's becoming more and more accepted, more and more required out there in safety. And I think that's kind of the big picture. Can you see safety 
and the way Deming would have you do it. Deming called it profound knowledge of a process. You know, if you could operate a manufacturing plant and you know exactly why those defects could come up and exactly how to prevent them, and you knew the, you know, the causation and everything, Deming called that profound knowledge. You really understood the process that produced either an accident or produced safety, the, the lack of an accident. And I think that's what this is largely all about. We have been fighting for years now to get out of reactive safety. And I think all of these things that you just described are advancements in that effort to get ahead of accidents, to not have to wait for somebody to get hurt. Uh, in my corporate career, we had this sick saying that, oh, we have, we've identified a risk out here. Who wants to get hurt on it so we can get it fixed? And uh, I was sad. It was uh, ironic, but it was true because we tended not to react to anything but accident data. And now we're finding all this other, all these other things to do it. And I think that's another place that we made a great progress was getting people to think more in a balanced scorecard sort of way than in just a linear uh, uh, pre-accident data, post-accident data sort of way. You know, leading indicators, lagging indicators, the, the terminology of the day. And I think that's where we're going. Uh, one other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly, and I, I'm not going to get into any details of it, but the technology is just running away with safety right now. And I think that's going to solve a lot of uh, lingering, ongoing problems that we've had for decades, for century in safety. But I think it's going to introduce a bunch of others, too. You remember when we were doing a, a wind farm over in, in Europe, one of the challenges we had was that uh, wind farms were so new that we didn't have a, a, a vast amount of knowledge about them. We didn't have a, a, a lot of things that we knew. We didn't have a history of where they had worked and where they had failed. And we were kind of exploring out there in that. I think most of the new technologies are going to be the same way. Uh, I haven't read about anybody that was killed by a drone, uh, or not very many anyway. Sounds like an airplane crash happened out there. and sounds like some Russian soldiers were killed by a Ukrainian uh, a little flying uh, gadget out there, but uh, uh, you know, this is all new. And, and I think we're going to have a learning curve from the new like that. But I think all the things you're talking about, hazard identification, hazard addressing, uh, all of that is going to keep us from getting behind that curve like we did uh, in the industrial revolution and the, the things that happened afterwards. I think that's an exciting thing about what's going to happen in safety. Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of paraphrasing around the statement of nothing new has been invented. You know, a lot of the clients that I work with, sometimes we need to get back to the basics because the original controls, the original things we put in place were quite effective, but we've tried so many different things that we've gotten away from the core responsibilities of identifying the things that can kill you and the things that could, you know, harm you, the low probability stuff, and then making sure we have the controls in place to address the things that can kill you and make sure we have influential systems in place to address the low probability types of risks. Going back to what we wrote about in steps is safety is knowing what can hurt you, knowing what to do to keep those things from hurting you, and then making sure we're regularly doing those things. So I think some of it is getting back to the basics, but I think some of it also in, in your opening remarks about kind of what, you're, what you've been seeing and the polarization, even within writing around poetry, I think we've we've not just as a society, but in safety, we've fallen pretty hard into that confirmation bias trap that we continue to look for things that prove what we already believe versus what, 
you and I say, you know, all progress begins by thinking differently. And I think a lot of what we need to do with communication is to challenge those paradigms, to challenge those biases that exist, because it's not a matter of just trying new things out there in safety. It's a matter of, are we thinking about it the right way? Whether it's Edward de Bono's methodologies on thinking or others, but really getting people to not just say, this is what we know and this is what confirms it, but intentionally putting information out there in front of people that gets them to think versus just follow this procedure, follow this rule, helping them to develop a, a theoretical understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, not just a follow steps one, two, and three and the risks controlled. Well, think about all the times you and I were together and a client quoted their fabulous uh, total recordable rate, their severity, their severity rate, uh, it, all of those <laughs> lagging indicators like that. And we asked them, were you safe or were you lucky? You know, do you have a metric that tells you you didn't have accidents because you took the right steps or do you, do you only have accident metrics? And uh, I, I think, you know, some people blew that off, but a lot of people made them think more deeply about what they were doing. You know, how close did they get? The, the old cliff analogy that we used to use, you know, did you not have anybody fall off your cliff because everybody's staying 10 feet back? Or did you have, have people walking out to the edge of the cliff and they just lucked into not falling off out there? Uh, and, and I think that kind of thinking has spurred all of these things that you're talking about right now. We've started realizing just counting the number of people that get hurt isn't adequate. It's not going to get the job done. And when we went on the search for other things like that, uh, certainly a lot of people went off in wrong directions on that, looking for leading indicators. You saw all the things where they got activity metrics and things like that and tried to figure out whether there's a correlation and they found correlations without causation and, and all of the, the traps that you can get into with data. But again, I, th I think one of the things that maybe we did is by promoting proactive safety like we did and uh, predicting the future like we did in one of our books uh, that I think we really got people thinking about how to do this better. Well, speaking of that book was published in 2015. It was called Forecasting Tomorrow, the Future of Safety Excellence. In that book, we made seven predictions. And one was one that we've already talked about here, and that's excellence reframed. How, we've, how we will define excellence and safety, to your point, is going to continuously evolve. The second one was moving away from a search for the next program to really assessing, do we have an effective strategy around this? The strategy is not failing less. It's about creating sustainable value. And then we made a prediction around that leaders are actually going to be leading safety versus it being delegated to the EHS or the safety professionals. And prediction four, we talked about the safety professional moving from and being perceived as evolving from being a grunt to a guardian to a guru. And number five, we talked about a new kind of safety consultant emerging. And that's those that are looking at, are we really thinking strategically about this and focusing the their effort on the needs of the organization versus on the expertise of what that consultant is. And then we talked about the programs are going to begin to change their focus away from solving problems to realizing the employees are the one at the sharp end of the stick. They're the true experts out there. And can we involve them and view them as 
problem solvers versus being the problems. And then finally, that the metrics are going to evolve away from the lagging indicators to are we creating real value with this? Not just how many warm bodies did we train, but did that change what they know? Did that change what they're doing? And did that change business results? So we, we wrote that book and it was published eight years ago now, I guess. And from what I see, there's still a, I guess I would say that a, I've seen many more organizations move towards making those predictions become true. But B, I still see where we're at today, a lot of organizations that have yet to go in that direction. So I, I believe that our predictions still remain true. What are your thoughts from what you see and kind of what's the future of what's coming? Well, first of all, I'm, one of the one of my proud points about that book was that we didn't fall into the trap, which we could have easily done from our conversations back there, of predicting the little things that were going to happen in the next three to six months, you know, that wouldn't have uh, lasting effects like that, because we could see those coming. They were very clear. But I mean, if that's all we had written about, that book would have been outdated a year after we wrote it, you know, but we backed away and looked at the more universal issues out there. Uh, that, that we saw happening in safety. And I think that's why, because this book is more universal, that it's still valid. It's still something that people could read and benefit from and kind of check their own organization and say, are we, are we doing these things? Are we evolving toward this more ideal way to approach safety than, than we were in the past? Um, I see, I see more organizations truly developing a strategy for safety. And uh, you've got your own, you, you had your own clients and I had mine uh, in, in a lot of those times, but I didn't find very many people that had a strategy for safety. I haven't found very many people that uh, before we brought it to them, uh, were even thinking about having a strategy for safety or the need for a safety strategy. And if they did, it was a strategy that the leader of the organization came up with, or it was one that they, they delegated to the safety professional. And it was so disjointed from the organizational strategy that it didn't have a chance. That the two competed with each other and destroyed each other. And I, I see companies nowadays um, taking a, a much better, more holistic approach to what they can do. And I, I think, too, they're redefining safety as a little bit away from perfection and more into the practical, which I think is exactly where it ought to go. You know, how, what we're doing is dangerous. How safely can we possibly do it? You know, that, that uh, theoretically you just stop doing it if it's, if it's dangerous, right? Well, don't do that. Don't go, don't go there. But uh, most organizations have inherent dangers in what they're doing. And do they know what those dangers are? Do they strategically address them? You know, and, and both from a, an organizational point of view and from an individual point of view. Do they help the workers know what they need to know and develop the mindset that they need to go out there and work in that environment without getting themselves hurt? Profound stuff. It's always great catching up with you, Terry. Yeah, where I, one of the things that I see that people are finally starting to get, and I'm going to go back to what you said about the company originally being named IPTI, that we need to look at this holistically, but we we gravitated towards safety because that's where the significant demand was. But I, I've seen over the last five to seven years, 
a an increase in realization that safety culture or EHS or HSE, whatever acronym you have, that that culture is just a small part of the occupational culture. And, and many of our clients that have worked so hard and so intelligently and improving, let's just call it safety culture for ease of conversation, they realize at some point that they reach a point of diminishing returns when everything that they're doing to provide positive experiences and positive stories, positive perceptions and behaviors around safety culture will be undone within the rest of the occupational culture. We could add so many positive things around the experiences of safety culture, but how that individual talks to their boss about operational realities, HR issues, logistics, whatever it is, you'll reach that point to where we can no longer add any more value unless we look at the overall responsibility of leader and how it affects the occupational culture as a whole. And in some of our clients where we have been very intentional in defining this is what success looks like in a safety culture, we've gotten them to the point where they now realize we have to expand this. We can't just be great at communication within safety information. We have to be great at communication as a whole. We can't just be great at coaching for safety performance. We have to be great at being a coach as a leader as a whole. And I think that's where a lot of the effort since 1986, when the term safety culture was created, where we're at now and going into 2023, I think that's going to be another big realization from the organizations that are mature to realize it's not just safety culture. And you and I've talked about that. There's really no such thing as a safety culture, yet we call it that to give it some common language and language does shape our culture, but it can't just be about how do we achieve a culture of safety excellence? How do we achieve a culture of excellence where safety excellence is just a byproduct of that? Amen. I'm exactly with you on that. We've been talking about that for years. I always remember the first times that we were, we were talking to people about safety strategy and they said that they delegated it to their safety person to come up with the safety strategy. I think you were the first one to ask them that. You said, was safety a, uh, is safety a core value of the company? And they said, yeah, the CEO or the president said yes. And you said, what other core values do you totally delegate? And I, right. I think it really got them thinking of, about what they needed to do as leaders to make sure that safety and operations didn't compete with each other, but worked in harmony. Amen to that as well. Well, Terry, it's been great having you on this podcast and reconnecting with you again from back where it all started, January 2008. I'd like to leave it with you and any closing remarks you have for the audience. <laughs> well, one of the things I was just sitting here thinking about is how, how much more, how many more topics we had we could talk about like that. So, uh, you know, maybe one of the predictions for the future is that we do this again at some point out there. And uh, kind of, kind of uh, aim it at some of the specific issues that we're seeing. Uh, four people have called me since I retired and told me fantastic success stories about things I was helping them to work on in their organizations. Three of them were getting a seat at the table for the for safety, a seat at the at the C-suite table in there, which is something we had worked on very hard for others. Uh, interestingly, nobody called me and told me failure stories. I called several people to check up on them, and they had not made the kind of progress they wanted to make. Uh, even though we had done something with them that was successful, they had other 
ambitions for their organization that they hadn't achieved them. You know, I think this is true in safety in general. Um, you know, we can brag about our successes, but we tend to not talk about our failures. Uh, and I, I think that's important also. You know, nobody wants to publicize their failures, but, uh, and, and a lot of them aren't failures in, in that traditional sense. They are just uh, of inability to accomplish a goal that they set for themselves out there and a little bit of frustration that they couldn't make something happen that they were trying really hard to do. Uh, I think that I think that's what the future is all about, that we're, we're going to continue to make progress. We're going to continue to share ideas with each other that are going to help. And uh, I think the technology and the communication ability that we have right now is going to facilitate that. And I hope more people are communicating, sharing and uh, using the technology to the best advantage to do that. Thank you very much, Terry. Hopefully we can make that prediction come true. And for the audience, we can record a few of these going forward in 2023. I thank you so much for joining us. And Terry Mathis, I wish you a great day. And all of you joining us on Safety Culture Excellence, I wish you great success in the coming year. Thank you. to receive our monthly newsletter, which includes our latest published articles, videos, blog, upcoming events, and the popular What's Wrong With This Picture game at proactsafety.com slash subscribe.